you're at the hospital. Guys, your wife is about to give birth. And you're waiting anxiously. You're pacing around. You can't wait for this little bundle of joy to come into this world. And after uh, quite a while in labor, your wife gives birth to a beautiful, bouncing baby boy. The cord is cut, cleaned up, he's swaddled. Eventually, he's laid in your arms, and you look down, and you're just overwhelmed with joy. A scripture pops into your mind. You think of Psalm 127 and verse 3. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. A fruit of the womb is a reward. Nothing could be better in this moment. You are totally swept away and lost in that moment. How could a beautiful, loving God create something so beautiful? And though you've never seen him before, you love him to death. Now imagine there's a knock at the door. It's the preacher. Preachers tend to show up at inappropriate times so they can get credit for the visit. That's kind of what we do. And you invite him in because you're so anxious to show off this new bundle of joy. And so he comes in and the preacher looks at the baby and says, sure is beautiful. I know you must be proud. Too bad he's a sinner. You might want to bring him by the church building as soon as possible so we can get him baptized. We'd hate for him to leave this world without first being sprinkled. And it sounds ridiculous, but that's how many in our world believe. You might be surprised to learn that much of the religious world believes in what is known as original sin, or what we might call hereditary sin, which means that a child is not born innocent, and maybe they don't frame it the way that I just mentioned, but that story has to be a reality to them if they believe in original sin. Let's look at some passages. First of all, this is from the Augsburg Confession of Faith from 1530. This is Lutheranism's creed. And we find these words, All men born according to nature are born with sin. That is, without the fear of God, without confidence towards God, and with concupiscence, and that this original disease or flaw is truly a sin, bringing condemnation and also eternal death to those who are not reborn through baptism and the Holy Spirit. Also, we see in the Westminster Confession of Faith, it states this, Our first parents sinned. By this sin, they fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and so became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. They being the root of all mankind, the guilt of this sin was imputed, and the same death in sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity. From this original corruption whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, do proceed or precede all actual transgressions. It continues. Every sin, both original and actual, doth in its own nature bring guilt upon the sinner, whereby he is bound over to the wrath of God and curse of the law, and so made subject to death, with all miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal. So here it is in layman's language. Because of the sin of Adam and Eve and the subsequent fall of mankind, each and every person is born or is born thereafter with that sin. 
They are born guilty. Another way of stating this is that one is born into this world hereditarily, totally depraved. This teaching is not without supposed proof text. First of all, we see in Psalm 51 and verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. We also see another proof text is found in Psalm 58, and starting in verse 3, it says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. These who speak lies go astray from birth. So, God settles it right here. I mean, he said it, so therefore, it's an open and shut case. We are born with sin. Well, not exactly. You know, as we have discussed throughout this year in being better Bible students, one of the things that we have said is you've got to consider context and you've got to consider literary form. And the Bible will not contradict itself. Although this teaching does, the Bible will not contradict itself. And so we have to dig a little deeper. And one of the things that should be an alarm to us or that should cause us to pause is when something doesn't match up with the rest of the Bible or when something doesn't match up with reality, right? I mean, if something doesn't make logical sense in our minds, that should cause us to pause and say, well, maybe I need to rethink this. Now, I realize there are some things in Scripture that defy reality, and we believe them anyway, like the virgin birth, right? But by and large, when we run across something that doesn't make sense in reality, then it should cause us to pause and dig a little deeper. And certainly that is the case when it comes to this idea of original sin. Are we born hereditarily and totally depraved? The Bible does not present that. In fact, if it did, it would be a contradiction of Scripture. And the Holy Spirit is not inspiring anyone in the Bible to contradict each other. So, when we talk about hereditary sin or we talk about original sin, are we supposed to believe that an innocent child brought into this world is completely and totally immersed and saturated with sin. And if so, then the next question becomes, what sin did my child commit in the womb? Did my child steal something while in the womb? Did my infant son or daughter commit adultery? Did my infant son or daughter while in the womb become a drunkard? What sin did they commit? Now, as we'll talk about later, sin is not genetic. It is not passed down. Some say that all you have to do is look at a child or look at an infant, and you can see that they are inherently selfish, and therefore they are sinful. The fact that they cry all the time shows that they are inherently selfish and thus sinful. But how else does a child communicate? As parents, we've all felt the frustration of hearing our child scream and cry, and we don't know what's wrong. If only they could tell us, right? We could fix it, but alas, we kind of have to do a trial and error thing to figure it out. That's the only way that they can communicate with us, right? And so we claim that they are selfish and thus sinful because they're crying and trying to communicate with us. I mean, how many parents do you know that say, oh, you wouldn't believe how sinful and selfish my baby is. They cry all the time. They expect me to feed them more than once a day? You mean my child expects me to change their diaper all the time? I mean, how selfish and sinful is that? Obviously, that is a very precarious argument 
and one that doesn't make a lot of logical sense. In all seriousness, this is one of the doctrines that gave me a lot of problems growing up. You know, I grew up in a religion that taught this and that believed this wholeheartedly. And it was hard for me because you mean to tell me an innocent child, one that is maybe stillborn or one that dies early, early on, within the first two or three days of being born or even after, you're telling me that that child is not in heaven? That that child is in a place called purgatory or worse? I mean, I couldn't buy that. And so what I did is what a lot of people tend to do in a certain religion or faith system is they decide, you know what, I'll filter out the, the good and, and leave the bad. And so you just kind of gloss over it. You don't think about it much. You say, yeah, I have problems with that, but I'll just accept all the good stuff. And you should never have to do that in terms of religion or a church, should you? You should never have to apologize for something that you believe. You should never have to say, well, I believe most of the things that we teach and that we live by are good. Most of the doctrines we live by are right, but I don't really like that one. It shouldn't be that way. We should be able to accept it all. We should be all in when it comes to our belief system, when it comes to doctrine, when it comes to what the Bible teaches. And what we should do is dig a little deeper. What we should do is try to come to a conclusion that makes sense and that is consistent with the Bible. You know, understand that in Psalm 51 and 5, if you use the NIV, it's not a translation. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. We talked about Bible translations earlier this year, and one of the things that we talked about is that they all have problems. You really can't elevate one above all the others and say, this one's the best, and all the others are failures, and therefore, if you use the others, you're sinful. Don't work that way. But we do know that they all have problems. We talked about that. And this is a problem, because this is not a translation. This is an interpretation, and it's a bad one at that. This is an instant where the translators, so-called translators, took it upon themselves to interpret a passage in a way that fits their dogma. You've heard about fake news a lot lately? This is fake translation. This isn't good. Because it presents something in Scripture that totally contradicts the free will that we have been endowed with by God. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. What is being said here, actually, if you look at the original language, what is being said is that David's mother was sinful. She gave birth to him and brought him into a sinful world, into a sinful environment. Thus, the influence of sin was there from the time he was born. But that's a very different message than this idea of original sin or hereditary sin. You know, when I was younger, my grandfather preached to me constantly about the dangers of smoking. He, he preached to me over and over again how I needed to stay away from smoking cigarettes, that they were bad for me. He talked about all the health problems that could come from smoking. There was one problem, though. My grandfather smoked like a freight train. And so it falls on deaf ears a little bit when someone preaches to you over and over again about the dangers of something, yet they're doing that very thing, right? And sometimes we send a mixed message when it comes to the Bible and when it comes to what the Bible is teaching. We see people sending mixed messages all the time from a biblical standpoint. If we are born a sinner, then this presents a real problem for someone who wants to consider the entirety of the Bible, right? 
How am I supposed to view this doctrine of inherited sin based on what I read, say, in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 3? Which states, truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So unless I become like one of these corrupt little sinners, I cannot see heaven? Is that what Jesus is teaching? Here's another one. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one's child, uh, one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. It sure seems to me that Jesus is setting forth children as the example. I mean, he says, unless you become like one of these little children, unless I become like what? A corrupt little sinner? That's what I'm supposed to do? That doesn't make sense, right? He's not suggesting that in any way whatsoever. When people brought their children to Jesus for him to lay hands on them, the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. So, Jesus himself says that the kingdom of heaven belongs to children. That's interesting, isn't it? You know, the prophet Ezekiel had something to say about this as well. In Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 20, it says, The person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. I don't know how you can read that and not come away with any other conclusion other than your sin is on you. Sin is not inherited. Let's go back to Psalm 51, the supposed proof text for this. Earlier in the year, we talked about interpretation. One of the things we talked about is being able to interpret a passage correctly because if you don't interpret a passage correctly, you're going to end up with the wrong application and therefore everything is for naught because the whole idea at the end of the day when it comes to Bible study is to arrive at the proper conclusion so that I can apply it to my life and thus live the way that God intended for me to live. The Bible is not about what does God, uh, what do I want God to say, but rather what does God say. And so many erroneous conclusions have arrived from someone deciding this is what I want God to say or by, dis by discerning for themselves that this is what I think this says rather than digging a little deeper to determine the original language, the literary form. And when it comes to this passage in Psalm 51 and 5, this is where all that comes in handy because this is poetry. This is not literal language. And you've got to be able to discern between the two. Remember, we talked about the book of Revelation and how many errors have come out of that book because people take it literally. It's apocalyptic language. You can't take it literally. And here we have poetic language. The form or the literary form is poetic in nature. Notice some other things that David says right here in Psalm 51. Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. I don't even know what hyssop is. But it's going to take a lot of it if you're going to purge somebody from their sins using hyssop. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. That's pretty white, isn't it? Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Did God literally break David's bones? And if so, when did that happen? Bones don't rejoice. Hyssop does not cleanse or purge one from their sin. And God doesn't literally wash a person until their skin is as white as snow. 
and babies aren't born sinners. We see similar poetry in other places. For instance, Job answered, uh, Job once stated this, For from my youth the fatherless grew up with me as with a father, and from my mother's womb I guided the widow. So Job took care of the widows and the orphans while he was in his mother's womb. That's kind of hard to do, isn't it? But that's where it becomes clear that we can't always take things literally, that we have to dig a little deeper. We can't take everything at face value. We can't be tossed to and fro by every wind or wave of doctrine. Instead, we've got to be those noble-minded Bereans that we read about in Acts chapter 17, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things are so. But there's another problem here. The conclusion that babies are born sinners contradicts the nature and handiwork of God. Something that this same David talked about in Psalm 139. You remember that psalm? He says, For you have formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Is David asserting that the same God who formed his inward parts also made him a sinner? David was fearfully and wonderfully made, as we all were, and yet he was fearfully and wonderfully made a sinner. There's a contradiction for sure. The one who does not tempt us with sin created us to be a sinner. If that's true, that we are born sinners, is it not also true that God made us that way? That's the only conclusion you can come to, right? And think about this. Jesus was born. Jesus was born to a human mother, which means what? He was sinful. I mean, how can you come to any other conclusion? I mean, if sin is inherited, if it's passed down, then Jesus was born with it. Now, some maneuver around this and say, well, really, it's passed down from the Father. Well, I mean, even if we don't have an earthly father present, He's still partly depraved, right? Because sin has passed along from the parents. Not only that, you can't use Psalm 51.5 as a proof text anymore if you believe that it only comes from the father because David says, from my mother's womb, right? You also think about this. If Jesus was born, then he was born sinful. Some consider that Mary... Jesus' mother was somehow held back, that she wasn't sinful, that God chose her from the very beginning and he kept her from sin so that she could, in fact, bear Jesus as her son. She is an exception to the rule, a nifty way to get around this, right? But understand the Bible in no way ever, ever, ever teaches that, not even close, not even close does the Bible intonate that Mary was somehow an exception to the rule or that she was sinless. No, the same Mary that gave birth to Jesus was the same Mary who needed a Savior like all of us. Mary gave birth to the one that would save her from her sins. Let that sink in a minute. So, a lot of contradictions. Too many to let us accept this. Sin is not inherited. It's committed. We don't, have to res- we don't have to respond to Psalm 51.5. We don't have to start by refuting the proof text or the so-called proof text. We can start with sin. 
and defining sin. What is sin? Well, first of all, we see it presented as a transgression. In the Hebrew, that is the word pasha, and it means to rebel. Psalm 32 and 1, for example, says, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Sin is rebellion. Sin is also described as iniquity from the Hebrew word avon, and it means perversity or crookedness. It refers to one who doesn't walk in a straight line or keep a straight course. An example of this would be Deuteronomy 5 and 32, which states, So you shall observe to do, just as the Lord your God has commanded you, you shall not turn aside to the right or to the left. So if you turn aside to the right or to the left, you are guilty of iniquity. In the New Testament, the Greek original language, we have the words harmartano and harmartia, which means a missing of the mark or to miss the mark. And this is where we fail to live up to the standard that God has set. Romans 3 and 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Inherent within all of these descriptions or definitions of sin is the idea of voluntary action, right? You commit a transgression. You choose iniquity. You decide whether you're going to walk in a straight line or keep a straight course. Things are not thrust upon you against your will. These are things that are chosen, things that you cannot be an innocent victim of with no accountability whatsoever. It doesn't work that way. 1 John 3 and 4 states, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. What is sin? It's disobedience. It's lawlessness. And notice that the word Paul uses, or excuse me, John uses everyone practices, everyone who practices sin. Practice means that it's chosen, right? It's something that you do voluntarily. It's not something that you accidentally do or that that maybe you didn't even know that you were doing, that God caused you to do without any sort of free will whatsoever. Scripture just, just blatantly defines sin as something that is chosen. Sin is not a substance. Sin is a moral issue. Babies can't choose sin. And moral character is not inherited. You know, the Bible is clear that our sins separate us from God. That's Isaiah 7, 15, and 16. But how can we be held to a moral standard? How can we be blamed for our choices if God made us this way? I mean, it's not our fault. If we inherited this, if this was thrust upon us against our will, then how can we ever be held responsible for anything that we do wrong? How can we be held accountable for our sin? So if I'm driving down the road and I am drunk and I cross the center line and hit someone else head on, killing everyone in that other car, not my fault. God made me this way. I have no accountability in this whatsoever. That terrorist that kills thousands of people, it's not his fault. He was born that way. So in the end, who is directly responsible for all of this? God. We're going to put this on God because that's all you can do. If you are born hereditarily sinful, then God made you that way. And you have no one to blame but Him. Obviously, that doesn't make sense. Sin is not a substance, sin is not genetic, it's not in our DNA, it's not hereditary, it's not transferable. Sin is chosen. 
and an infinitely perfect and just God does not condemn the entire human race for the sin committed by Adam and Eve. There are no proxies when it comes to morals. Adam did not commit sin for us by proxy. Sin cannot be imputed where it does not exist without there being injustice. Our perfect God, whose perfect justice does not punish the innocent for the guilt of another. That's not the way sin works. That's not the way free will works. And thankfully, that's not the way God works. You know, when I was uh, on the board with Pregnancy Resources here in Abilene, we had a couple that had given birth to a, an infant that only lived a few hours outside the womb. Sadly, they knew that that would be the case, and so they had kind of planned for that and tried to get ready for that as much as you can. But they didn't go to church. They had four other children. They didn't know anybody who could conduct the funeral, and so Pregnancy Resources asked if I would be willing to do the funeral for this, this infant. And I certainly said yes. I mean, anything I can do to help the family and perhaps be an influence there, I'm willing to do. I'd not met the family. I walked in the night of the visitation, and there was the little baby propped up in the middle of the funeral home. Saddest thing I've ever seen. The husband and wife were crying in the corner. I went over and introduced myself. Got to know each other a little bit, and then the day of the funeral came. And what do you say? You know, it's difficult. I mean, I've done a lot of funerals. I've done a lot of funerals that were difficult. Most of the funerals I do are for people who were Christians for a very long time, and they die at the ripe old age of 80, 90, 100 years of age. Those are not hard funerals to do. This was a hard funeral because of the circumstances surrounding it you think about how much harder that funeral would have been if I had to stand up there and tell these folks that their poor infant is not in heaven and it's all their fault you're the one that brought him into this world you passed along sin sorry just the way it is how useless is that right I mean how how miserable is that to to believe that message, but not only believe it, but to convey it, to actually teach it, right? Certainly we can't believe something so heinous, that our perfect and just God would create a child in his image that was inherently selfish. Thankfully, we serve a God who created us in his image, who endowed us with free will, and does not hold us responsible for sins we didn't commit. Let's remember that. Let's pray. Most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day that we could come here, that we could worship you, that we could sing praises in your name, that we could partake of the Lord's Supper, and that we could study your word. Help us, God, to live in such a way as that we are pleasing to you. Help us to love and support one another, and God, help us to be better Bible students. Help us to seek what you would have us to know from what you have said through your word. And help us to teach others, to help them understand that you are a great God that provides great hope. And help us to teach and preach that hope to everyone who will listen. And God, thank you that you don't punish us for sins we didn't commit. But we pray that you will forgive us for those sins we do commit.
And it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. I think every sermon should leave you with hope. Even if it's, if it's hard to deliver, even if it's hard to hear, every sermon should leave you with hope. That's what we told our young people at preacher training camp a few weeks ago, is whatever you say, whatever you do in your sermon, it needs to be truth, and it needs to leave people with hope. That even if they're on the wrong track and they're not anywhere close to being saved, that they can be, that there is hope. As long as they're drawing breath, there is hope. And I want to tell you that this morning, there's hope. If we can help you in any way this morning, if you need the prayers of this church family, if you need to get back on track, if you're somebody that has not begun a daily walk with God through baptism and you're ready to do that, then we want to help you with that as well. But don't leave here without hope. And don't leave here without doing something about it if you need to. Come now as we stand and as we sing. We shall assemble on the mountain.